Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. So that's all the announcements I have, so let's jump into this morning's message. Uh, We are now in the fourth week of a series through the Apostles' Creed. Um, It is an opportunity for us to just look at this ancient creed um, and not only study it for understanding, but really study it to allow it to uh, sink into our hearts and lives. A couple of things that I want to mention each week of the series, and I'll mention them again uh, here this morning, is this. The Apostles' Creed uh, is a series of confessions or statements uh, about Christian belief. Uh, Now, these statements, uh, these confessions are important because they anchor our theology, Uh, It's important to know that our theology or the ways in which we think about God just aren't left to our own sort of emotional state. It isn't just left to our own interpretation. Uh, And so this creed helps to really anchor our theology, uh, but it also unites us with Christians across time and expressions uh, over the course of the last uh, several thousand years. Uh, And so it it unites us with Christians across time and expression. Now, when someone talks about the body of Christ and the unity of the body of Christ, I can really wrap my mind around the unity across the globe uh, and the different expressions of worship that are different than mine uh, in terms of people that are living today. So, you know, like I can understand that the body of Christ is, is a global reality that's always expressed in local communities of believers uh, gathering together. And when I worshiped with my brothers and sisters in Christ in the Dominican Republic when I was in, in college, I, I, I was exposed to sort of different expressions of worship. Uh, you know, in uh, the United States, we tend to say, hey, our to an hour and 15, you get in and out, uh, you know, you, you do three songs, the sermon, you know, it's like, there's just this normal pattern. In the Dominican Republic, uh, they sing for as long as we meet, uh, and then the sermon comes up, and, and he just uh, speaks from his heart with no notes until he's done, uh, which may be somewhere uh, after the Broncos game that day. Uh, it's just like, it just lasts a really long time, and, and you know, the, the American part of me says, oh, there's something wrong with that, but we need to recognize that even across expressions of faith, uh, we are united. And just because expressions of of worship are different than ours doesn't mean that they're wrong uh, or necessarily bad. But what is harder to think about uh, is, is unity with Christians across time. And that's really what the Apostles' Creed teaches us, is that we're not just unified as a body of Christ and, and a body of believers uh, around the globe right now in all of these different expressions, but we're also united uh, with Christians across time. And that is to say that for thousands of years, Christians in worship services have professed the creed together as they were seeking to anchor their own faith in their own world, in their own particular context. And to me, that is absolutely fascinating, uh, that when we say the creed together, we are joining with the voices of Christians who have gone before us, who are, who are living right now with us, and who will follow after us in anchoring our faith and wrestling with what does it look like to be a Christian in this context and in this time. And so my goal throughout this series has really been to show you how the creed is helpful, not just for us to uh, profess and confess together as a community, but also to show how the creed can be helpful in our own personal expressions of faith. That yes, this is a corporate, uh, this, is a, this is a corporate statement of belief, but it also has value in our own personal practice of faith. And let me just tell you one example from my own life uh, as to how that is the case. Uh, most mornings, Uh, My prayer time begins with an opening prayer, uh, then a confession. Uh, But after my confession of sin, uh, I need a different type of confession. 
I need a confession of belief. Uh, and so the confession of sin um, is, is a little bit disorienting for me. This is actually a new practice in my own life where uh, each, each morning I'll, I'll uh, say a traditional confession of sin. Most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone. In fact, the lyrics of the song Now and at the Hour that we just sang are inspired by that very prayer. And so I pray that prayer. But for me, it's a, very, it's a little bit disorienting, right? It's disorienting because I recognize that, that maybe I haven't lived out my faith perfectly in the ways that I've always wanted or intended, uh, that I haven't lived up to my own expectations of myself. And, and maybe there's a very real sense in which I haven't lived up to, the, to God's expectations of me. And, and for me, that's very disorienting. For me to just, before God, confess that I have fallen short, uh, 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 fallen short of his expectations in mine as well. And so confessing then the creed and belief in a powerful and personal God, uh, in belief in a Jesus who is both Lord and Christ, who took on my sin, who was raised from the dead, and then confessing belief in the Spirit and the church and forgiveness and, and rec- resurrection and communion of saints, like these things help to reorient me and remind me of the faith that I'm a part of. And then I pray the Lord's Prayer. And so every morning it's an opening prayer, a confession of sin, a confession of belief, and then the Lord's Prayer. Before I ever start just kind of praying however I feel like I want to pray. And in other words, this has found tremendous value for me because the confession of sin is disorientation. But the confession of belief is reorientation. Does that make sense? And I would really just encourage you uh, in your own personal practice of faith to begin thinking about what are the ways in which the creed has a place in my own personal practice of faith. And so today what we want to do is, as we've been walking through this creed, uh, I want to, we want to look today at this third confession regarding the life of Jesus Christ, which is he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, I want to... Um, I want to explain one caveat about this series as we walk through. Uh, it is our typical practice to take a scripture and just seek to, to see how that scripture can speak to us and just systematically walk through passages of scripture. But uh, our series on the Apostles' Creed is inherently topical where we're just kind of looking at different scriptures throughout. And so we don't have like a main passage of scripture that we'll be reading or looking at this morning, uh, but that's atypical for us as we walk through this, uh, this creed topically. Uh, but before we do that, Uh, I want to recite the creed together, and then I'll say a word of prayer, and we'll jump right in to studying this phrase, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so let's recite the Apostles' Creed together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we look at your word and as we um, seek to unite ourselves with believers across the globe and across time, 
by looking at this important confession of belief. Uh, I pray, God, that you would illuminate our minds and give us knowledge. But, Lord, give us knowledge not just for the sake of knowledge, but would you give us wisdom and understanding for the purpose of shaping our hearts more and more into your likeness. Uh, For, Father, we confess today that you are good. And we look forward to the day, God, when you will return and make all things new. And so, God, if nothing else today, would you... Fill us with tremendous hope for who you are and for all that you've done. We give you thanks and we give you praise today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Uh, Few things have captured the imaginations of Christians like the return of Christ. Uh, And I would want to say myself included. Uh, Countless books have been written about Christ's return, some dramatic in nature, some theological in nature, uh, others attempting to bridge both of those. Uh, And if you were to try and time travel to the mid-90s on my bookshelf, uh, there would be all 12 uh, of the books in the series, the Left Behind series. You would find among them the the, the book Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and you would find CDs, and for those of you who are under 30, that's a compact disc used to play music. Uh, You would find CDs with songs like Thief in the Night or I Wish We Had All Been Ready. And like many of you, probably my thoughts about Christ's return were often filled uh, with violence, harsh judgments, and surprise evacuations from earth. In fact, I always assumed that the ascension of Christ, that's the odd little story in the book of Acts uh, where Jesus ascends up into the sky or goes up into the sky. I always assumed that the ascension of Jesus Christ was a story about how Jesus left Uh, And went up to heaven, uh, wherever that was, and I wasn't quite sure. And he would one day then return from that place that he had gone to, to come back in all of his wrath and angry glory. And, And I want to confess to you today that I have come to think differently about Christ's return. And one of the things that has helped me think differently... Uh, or maybe even cause me to think differently about Christ's return, is I've really come to see uh, heaven and earth as, as different realms of reality. Now, let me unpack that a bit. Um, we, tend, we, have, we, we tend to create a spatial relationship between heaven and earth. Uh, earth is, is here, and heaven is then up there. And we, we tend to think about it in terms of this, that Jesus left this place, earth, and he must return. So cue all the images of Jesus parachuting down from somewhere out there. And when we conceptualize heaven in that way, we are left to fill in a lot of blanks on our own uh, about what heaven might be or what it's like or, or what it is going to one day be like. We, we have a lot to sort of fill in when we conceptualize this spatial relationship between heaven and earth. Uh, and we have a lot to fill in because the scripture doesn't fill it in for us. Uh, and so anytime that we sort of conceptualize the relationship between heaven and earth in spatial terms, earth is here, heaven is up there, then we have to do a lot of work to fill in the blanks of what that might be like or what that might look like. Um, the reason for that, of course, is that the scriptures don't talk about heaven in that way. Uh, we don't have a lot to go on. We have to fill in a lot of our own blanks because we really aren't given a lot of evidence from Scripture of what this relationship might be like. But what the Scripture does offer us is, in fact, a lot different viewpoint of the relationship between heaven and earth. In fact, what Scriptures talk about and what Jesus talks a lot about in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Matthew, is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. 
In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. He talks about how the kingdom of heaven has come near, and so we need to repent and follow the Jesus way. He says the kingdom of heaven is is like yeast that is working its way through the dough or like treasure that is hidden in a field or it's like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, yet when planted becomes a a big and healthy uh, small tree. And all of these images don't really help us at all if we're thinking about heaven as a place that is up in the sky. In fact, we might be tempted to say, if we might be tempted to read these things about the kingdom of heaven, and if we are conceptualizing heaven in the very same way, we will be left at best very confused about what is heaven really and what is its relationship to this place or this thing called earth. However, these images, these, these metaphors of, of the kingdom of heaven coming near, which causes us to repent and follow the Jesus way, this, this idea of the kingdom of heaven like yeast that is working its way through the dough or a treasure in a field or a mustard seed are actually quite helpful if we instead shift our thinking and begin to think of, of heaven as, as a realm of reality. And so what I want to say to you today, first off, is if we're ever going to approach this idea of Christ's return, it makes all the difference in the world how we think about and conceptualize heaven. And so I want you to think about heaven as a, a play, all the places where the way of God or the way of Jesus rules. Where is it that we see evidence here and now on earth that the way of Jesus is being lived out and being carried out perfectly? Then, then I, want, I want us to think about that as heaven. What this means then is that as different realms of reality, heaven and earth are connected in the same way that Narnia is connected to England. <laughs> Now, so in these Chronicles of Narnia stories, uh, the characters enter the fantastic world of Narnia through the back of the wardrobe or through a painting in the spare bedroom. And if you haven't ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, I hope that you will do that. Uh, But in these fantastic stories, there is this, this world that is so far away and yet so intimately connected to our own world that you can enter it through the back of the wardrobe. Or... Uh, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, the, the, the characters are, are staring at uh, a picture of the ocean on the wall. And all of a sudden, the, the picture is moving. It looks alive. And then all of a sudden, they find themselves in the sea and in Narnia. It's, it's as far away as a totally different world or universe. And yet as close as entering through a picture on the wall. And so while this seems like just kind of crazy fantasy to us, it is actually a far better representation of the relationship between heaven and earth than our typical concept of heaven being up there. In fact, let me give you a couple of more examples because our culture wrestles with this very idea in the stories that we tell. Uh, the stories that we tell wrestle with this exact same idea. In the science fiction TV show Fringe, are any Fringe fans out there? Uh, yeah, so yes, <laughs> like <laughs> all of the Fringe fans are like, me? <laughs> like, I love the sci-fi network, right? Uh, so I won't ask you to say a loud shout of amen for all of you Fringe fans. But in this show, 
Uh, the characters begin to experience strange phenomenon that ultimately leads them to the discovery of a parallel universe. Now, this universe is much like their own, but with some significant differences of how the universe is run. In other words, it is as though in this universe, someone else is in charge. And these two universes are as close as the next room, but as far away as can be. And in fact, if you were to travel from one universe to the next, uh, you need only to go through a portal. Um, In the popular Netflix series, Stranger Things, it tells the story of a missing boy uh, who has ended up in what is called the upside down world. Now, spoiler alert, right? Uh, I always give spoiler alerts uh, too late. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I just gave that away. Spoiler alert. So please disregard what I just told you. But it's a story of a missing boy who has ended up in a, in a world that is called the upside down world. It is a world much like their own, but darker. And, and, and again, the, it's as though that world is so far away. And yet the space between the two worlds is paper thin. Um, And in each of these stories, the Chronicles included, there are hints or there are signposts or there are clues that this other world or this other realm exists. And so the characters find themselves operating within what they seem to be just normal reality. This is all that there is until they see signposts, clues, things that are pointing to the fact that there's something else that is out there, something else that exists. And I would argue that we find ourselves in the very same thing, right? In fact, there's lots of people in our own world and in our own culture who would be very tempted to believe that this is all that there is. There is simply nothing beyond this life, this world. Uh, This is what you see is what you get. WYSIWYG, right? Have you ever heard that? WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. And and so a lot of people, (laughs) some of you are like, he just derailed with that. I promise you that's a real thing. Uh, the WYSIWYG is a real thing. Uh, and, and so it's like, okay, what you see is what you get. And sort of we operate through this world with, that, with a WYSIWYG type of attitude. And, and yet until, until either we have this experience of, of beauty that points us to the reality that maybe there's something else out there. Or until we have the opposite experience where we have an, an intense struggle or difficulty of some kind. And it causes us to bring into question, is this really all that there is? There's clues that are pointing to something else. And I would want to say to you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is in fact a signpost of the new world that we will enjoy at his appearing. That I said last week that one of the most audacious things we can do as the people of God is to dare to hope in the midst of, of hope being lost. When any logical person would look at a situation and say, you know what, all hope is lost. Uh, it is the unique claim of the Christian to say, no, 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 no. All hope is not lost. And I will choose to hold on to hope. And we hold on to hope because of the reality of the resurrection Of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is in fact the very first signpost that there's something else going on. 
and mercy. And now in our own world, anytime that we see mercy, love, healing, forgiveness, virtue, all of these things are clues that something beyond this broken world exists. But if we got caught in a what you see is what you get kind of attitude and and framework and, and worldview, man, we would have no cause for hope. We would have no cause for joy. We would just be able to say, oh, I've just got to grab all I can. I got to grab all the experiences I can that are going to bring whatever kind of happiness, fleeting or otherwise to myself, because this is all that there is. And there's brokenness all around. And the, and the Christian can rest in the midst of brokenness and, and be able to say, there is hope that one day God will make all things new. There are signposts, there are clues, there are realities that are pointing me to a different kind of realm that holds my allegiance and holds my attention. Are you with me? And so heaven and the kingdom of heaven is as close as a whisper. Now, when we think about heaven and earth this way, then it, begin, it then changes the way in which we think about Jesus' return, right? Uh, at the ascension, that weird story in the book of Acts where Jesus floats up into the sky and the disciples are kind of looking at him saying, oh, good night, there he goes again. First he died, then he raised from the dead. That was good news, but now he's gone. Ugh, what are we going to do now, right? Uh, and so you kind of get this weird story of, okay, then Jesus left and now he has to come back. But if we think about it in this way, then everything begins to change the way in which we think about Jesus' return. In fact, I would say this. I think the word return is actually problematic because it assumes that Jesus left and then needs to come back. This also assumes, though we would probably never admit this out loud, that Jesus is not really present. Remember, if Jesus left... And he went up there, and, and, our, and the way in which we understand heaven and earth is earth is here and heaven is up there. Then Jesus left and went there. And so now he's gone, absent, not here. And so it assumes on some level then that Jesus left, therefore he must be absent. And in fact, this is really how we actually make sense of a lot of our suffering. A lot of the times when we suffer, the, way, the only way that we know to make sense of it is that God isn't here or God doesn't care. And so what I would like to suggest is that we don't think about Christ coming as a return as much as an appearing. Now, the passage of scripture that Ryan read during our worship set, and I want to read it again, found in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And I've asked our audio video people to not put any scriptures on the screen because I want you to listen. I want you to listen, but it says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us all from wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. You see, when we think about it as a return, it's, it's got this underlying assumption that Jesus left and has to come back. When we think about it as an appearing, then that changes things. And we say, you know, God in Christ Jesus is fully present both in heaven and earth. He sits as ruler over heaven and earth. He needs only to make his rulership or his reign known by appearing. I love this old hymn, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. There's a, there's a line in there that says, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. 
It's this idea that we're just kind of rolling back the very thin curtain between heaven and earth for Jesus to appear. It isn't that he left and has to come back. It's just simply that we're rolling the the veil back so that we can see, in fact, that Jesus has been here all along with us. And so when we think about it in this way, what it ultimately means is that Jesus is present with us in heaven and on earth. He is here, right here and right now. He sits at the right hand of God the Father as ruler, not just over heaven, but also over heaven and earth. Which is what this ultimately means then is that he, isn't, he didn't leave and then now is therefore absent, but he walks with us in our struggle. He stands with us in our heartache. He sees us through the difficulties. He embraces our very brokenness. And that's actually really good news, right? If we begin to reframe our picture of God and our view of God, not as one who is, uh, who is repulsed by our brokenness, but as one who is here and fully present and on the cross embraces our brokenness and walks with us through all of the difficulties, then all of a sudden that changes everything, Right? And so what, what we have then is our hope of his appearing. For at his appearing, his presence will be unhindered. What the Apostle Paul says is that right now everything is veiled. It's as though we're looking through a veil. And at his appearing, the veil is rolled back. Like the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The veil is rolled back and his presence then is absolutely unhindered in the world and his reign, his rule over earth is fully realized. And so at Jesus's, Jesus then, sorry, Jesus' appearing is all about how the ways of heaven will come to be fully realized on earth. That heaven will come to bear on earth. And that is a tremendously hopeful message. That is a tremendously hopeful gospel. Uh, That ultimately what we hope for is the day in which at his appearing, the ways of heaven, mercy, grace, forgiveness, love, reconciliation will come to fully bear on this place and on our brokenness. And friends, that brings incredible hope. Amen? In fact, I would say there's very few things we need in our world more now than hope. All is not lost. And with the rule of heaven then will come judgment. We believe in Jesus Christ. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Dum, 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 right? It's like, oh, it's all, it's all good news. It's all soft clouds until you get to judgment, right? Uh, and so here it is. Uh, Judgment. The rule of heaven will come with judgment. Uh, you know, justice is one of the most profound longings of the human heart. Uh, let me say it again. Justice is one of the most profound longings of the human heart. We all want to see justice come to pass. Uh, there, I, have, I have racked my brain as to, and I've talked about this before, but uh, I think it's appropriate here again. I, I have racked my brain to try to figure out where the saturation point for superhero movies really is. Um, and, and, I, I, and, and it just, ticket sales show us that we're not there yet. Uh, we are not yet to the saturation point of superhero movies. And I think to myself, how can this be? How can you release four or five superhero movies in a summer, every summer, uh, and have them all be blockbusters? How can you make TV shows, like the CW is now the superhero TV network, Right? 
I mean, it's like, what is the, like the rookies of DC, the, the flash arrow. And, and then you just like cross pollinate them all so that all their stories are, are or, like integrating to one another. And it's just like, we have not gotten there yet. And I think to myself, how can this be? And I, I have to assume that what superhero uh, TV shows and storylines are doing is they're giving us justice. And, and there is no saturation point for our desire for justice. We want to see things be made right. And so when we can get a storyline that has fighting and costumes and justice, it's just going to sell like crazy, right? And, and so there's this, this longing for justice in the human heart. Uh, we long to see it come to pass, but for many of us, God's return and subsequent judgment uh, will finally bring it, right? And we think, man, this is finally when justice will come. Uh, but that may not mean exactly what we think it means, or it may not mean what we immediately think it means. In, in fact, let's look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Uh, and this is my second sermon for today. Uh, and so the, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Uh, and so, you know, the old time preachers would be like, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a sheep or a goat? You know, uh, I'm not going to do that. So... <laughs> So then the king will say, uh, to those on my right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance for the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? Uh, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? Then the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done for me. And then those on his left will say, he will, he will say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And and, and who appreciates the brevity of those on his left? Um, I do. So uh, then verse 45, that was a joke, very under the radar. Um, verse 45, then he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, uh, but the righteous to eternal life. What we get in this passage is a picture of what it looks like for God to carry out his judgment. And in this famous passage, what that looks like is like a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. And so we are right to believe that Jesus' appearing will bring justice once and for all. And this passage and many others affirm that at Christ's appearing, justice will be had. Justice will finally come. However, God's judgment and justice isn't one of violent retribution uh, for those who have rejected him. But it is rather a, a sorting out or an ordering of creation. And, and so the way in which I want you to begin thinking about uh, God's judgment is this. I want you to see God's judgment 
is the carrying out of God's justice. But God's justice is a proper ordering of creation and ourselves and the relationship between the two. So God's justice isn't violent retribution. Right? And that's, that's sort of the message that our culture has over and over and over again. A lot of times justice is just a really nice term for retribution. Which is just a really nice term for revenge. And so a lot of our superhero storylines are, are bent on revenge of some kind. And then at the end, uh, when the bad guy is killed, we just call it justice. And we need to ask the difficult question of, is God's justice the same as that kind of justice? And I would argue that it isn't. But rather, God's justice is, is, is a reordering or a sorting out of, of all of creation, ourselves, and then the relationship between the two. So that when, God, when, when Jesus Christ appears and the thin veil is removed, God brings about his justice. What he does in his love is he begins to sort out all of creation, bringing things into proper order, uh, bringing our heart's desires into proper order. And those who have rejected him, he's going to honor that and their free will. And they're going to go and he's going to sort that out uh, so that their sin is just left to be fully played out in their life and in their heart. And, but those who have said yes to God, those who have said, I want to walk in the Jesus way, he's going to refine the parts of us that are in perfectly alignment with him. And so that we'll be in perfect relationship with him, in perfect relationship with one another, and in perfect relationship with all of creation. That's a, a sorting out, an ordering And that's actually the picture that we get in Matthew chapter 25. We get a picture of what it looks like for God to carry out his judgment. And it is a sorting out. You'll also notice though that the passage emphasizes heavily the works of the faithful. Or the lack of works of the unfaithful. Right? I mean I was hungry and you fed me. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was in prison you came and visited me. Um, these are very sort of tangible works focused thing. And so a big portion and emphasis of the passage is on uh, the works of the faithful or the lack of works of the unfaithful. But this is not a way of saying that we are judged based on our works and that if at the end of our life, uh, then if our, as long as our good things sort of outweigh our bad things, then, then we're good to go. Uh, but rather what it means is that in sorting out the world and bringing it back to right, God honors our choice to either follow him or reject him. In other words, the choices that we make today are preparing us for his justice. The choices that we make today are preparing us for his judgment. We tend to think of eternity as something that is sort of yet to come out there and we tend to to take justice and judgment and put them purely in the future as well. And what I want to do is say, yes, those are future realities, but let's also pull them into the present because eternity is not sort of time from our death on. Eternity is all of time. Congratulations, you are living in eternity right now. And in fact, what, what God is saying through this passage is that at the judgment, when, when God goes to sort the world out and make it right, he is going to honor the state of our hearts. 
that have either rejected him or accepted him. The choices we make today are preparing us for his justice. And so are we choosing him or are we choosing the ways of sin and power and materialism and et cetera and et cetera and et cetera? Um, this has certainly given us a lot to think about. But what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to f- close this, uh, this message uh, with a reading from Richard Rohr. Uh, Richard Rohr is a theologian, he's a speaker, he's a prolific author. Uh, But if I were to give him sort of one label, I would say he's a mystic. He's a Christian mystic. Uh, What I mean by that is he is one who is very quick to embrace both the logical aspects of faith and then the mysterious aspects of faith. He he understands that there are often realities that that can't be uh, proven or shown through the scientific method. Uh, but they are known, but they are still just as true. Uh, and and he uh, had forwarded to me by a member of our congregation uh, an, an email reflection that he had that I thought was so appropriate for this morning. I wanted to read a portion of it, and then after I read this, I will lead us to the Lord's table and give us some instructions. Uh, but this this is uh, from Richard Rohr. In the story of Christ's ascension, as told in Acts. Angels appear next to the disciples as they gaze up after the rising figure, who is Jesus. Now the angels ask the disciples, why are you standing here staring up into heaven? The truth is most of Christianity has been doing just that. Straining to find the historical Jesus up there. Where did he go? We've been obsessed with the question because we think the universe is divided into two separate levels, heaven, or or earth, and heaven. But it is actually one universe, and all within it is transmuted and transformed by the glory of God. The whole point of the incarnation and the risen body is that Christ is here, and always was. But now we have a story that allows us to imagine just as if it were to be true. Jesus didn't go anywhere. He became the universal, omnipotent body of Christ. And that's why in the final book of the Bible, in the final book of the Bible, it promises us a new heaven and a new earth, not an escape from earth. We focused focused on going to heaven instead of living on earth as Jesus did which makes heaven and earth one. And then he brings it right home to our our everyday choices. He says, it is heaven all the way to heaven. Now, what does he mean by that? What I think he means is that the choices we make today as we align ourselves with the holiness of God, it is heaven all the way to heaven, which means holiness has built in as its own reward, holiness. Virtue is its own reward. The reward of virtue is virtue. It is heaven all the way to heaven. And then he says this, what you choose now is exactly what you choose to be forever. God will not disappoint you. In other words, God will honor the state of your heart. What you choose now is what you choose to be forever. Because church, eternity 
has already started. And so what is the best way to prepare for Jesus appearing? The best way is to give our hearts to Jesus today. To commit to following the ways of Jesus right now. And during our time at the table, in our time of communion, I simply just want to ask you to discern the state of your own heart. And you may be here today and you are a person who you would say, you know what, I'm not a person of faith. And, and I don't even know what it means to call Jesus Savior or Lord. And, and maybe today God is just speaking to you and challenging you and saying, you may not have all the answers, but I invite you in to a relationship with me. Or maybe you're here today and by uh, profession and by confession you are a Christian, but uh, there are things in your life that, that just need to be more properly aligned to, to making sure that, that your priorities are aligned with, with what you profess as your faith and belief. Um, I, I don't know where you're at today, but I, I would just encourage you uh, by saying God will not disappoint us he chooses to honor our hearts. Um, let's pray together, and then I'll lead us to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us today and challenging us. Uh, we pray, God, that in your goodness and in your holiness, uh, you would speak to our hearts. You would transform us, uh, that you would form us and shape us, Lord, more and more into your likeness. And God, be with us in these moments as we gather around your table. May we, in taking this bread and juice into our mouths, uh, be also, Lord, taking in your very life, sharing in the resurrected power of Jesus. So God, be with us in these moments, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.